rather than having the people select their politicians. The politicians are trying to cherry pick their voters. This is an assault on the covenant that we have with one another as an American people, and it's my job to protect it. Yeah, it's my job too. All of our jobs. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. That's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's, KEPW in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFC, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Bird and Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Very quickly, my thanks to Nicole Sandler for her interview with Arizona's Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs, on Friday's Bradcast. Uh, If you missed that or any other show, you can download them anytime for free at bradblog.com. All of this as the nation is reeling still today from the various efforts to undermine the right to vote now being pushed by Republicans all across the country. In fact, nowhere is the outrage greater today, however, as we go to air Then in the great state of Georgia, where we discussed their impending bill last week with Marilyn Marks of Coalition for Good Governance on this show, uh, I think it was on Wednesday, she was warning about what was coming, but even she did not expect the entire thing would be passed by both houses of the state legislature and signed almost immediately thereafter on Thursday by the governor. Well, the pushback has uh, been coming now loud and clearly ever since. And you know, oh, you know it's getting serious when professional sports leagues are discussing, uh, discussing throwing around their considerable weight. The Major League Baseball Players Association Executive Director Tony Clark says that players are ready to discuss moving the summer's all-star game out of Atlanta 
after Republicans in the majority on the state legislature quickly passed an election reform bill restricting voter access. That, according to the Boston Globe, late last week. The 91st MLB All-Star Game is scheduled for uh, the Atlanta Braves' Truist Park on July 13. They are optimistically planning to have full capacity, a full capacity crowd by then, even as COVID infection rates have now begun moving back up, unfortunately, in recent days. As uh, hospitalizations for now uh, had been coming down, they are now sort of plateauing. Death rates, however, are still falling, at least for the time being, as COVID vaccine distribution numbers continue to smash records. There's a good news part of that story for some of the lesser good news. Maybe we'll speak about that a little bit later in the show. But a full capacity All-Star game this summer would, of course, be very important to Atlanta and Georgia's economy after a year of revenue losses during the pandemic lockdowns. But that may all fall apart in the Peach State as the public comes to learn what Georgia lawmakers actually did last week when in just one day a sweeping bill to restrict voting rights was passed in both the state House and Senate and signed almost immediately by the state's Republican governor and, by the way, the former vote-suppressing champion of Georgia. That would be um, at when, as, when he served as Secretary of State, Governor Brian Kemp. Uh, players are very much aware of the Georgia bill, according to uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the executive director of the MLB Players Association. Last Friday, Tony Clark told the Boston Globe that the union body is, quote, very much aware of the new Georgia voting law. That includes new ID requirements for mail voting, limits on Dropbox uses, shortened voting hours in some locations, the banning of distribution of food and most beverages to voters while they are waiting in hours-long lines. And though we tried to sound the alarm about this provision last week on the broadcast, it's the one that's still really getting the least coverage, but it shouldn't. There is a new scheme in this bill that would essentially allow for the partisan GOP majority legislature to take over county elections boards entirely for virtually any reason they like, allowing them in turn to undermine elections and, yes, even overturn results. Players are very much aware of the Georgia voting bill, which places restrictions on voting accessibility that will make it particularly difficult for black voters to reach the polls. That, according to Tony Clark of the Players Association during an interview with The Globe, as it re relates to the All-Star game, he said, we would look forward to having that conversation with the league. There is precedent for moving an all-star game based on enacted legislation. The NBA, for example, moved its 2017 game out of Charlotte, North Carolina, following laws that limited anti-discrimination protections for the LGBTQ community uh, that were adopted by that state's GOP majority legislature back in 2016. The NCAA banned holding championships in the state at the time, and companies delayed or canceled events there. After the North Carolina legislature partially repealed the law, the NBA All-Star Game eventually returned in 2019, as did other major sporting events. But Major League Baseball players aren't the only league employees that have concerns about the Georgia bill. 
L.A. Dodgers manager Dave Roberts currently slated to manage the National League in the All-Star Game after winning last year's World Series told Bill Shakin of the L.A. Times that he will consider skipping the game if MLB does not move it. If it gets to that point, said Roberts, it'll certainly be a decision I will have to make personally. When you're trying to restrict African-American votes, he said, American citizens, that is alarming to hear, according to Roberts. He is currently, by the way, one of just two African-American managers in Major League Baseball. The reform that was signed by, and reform is such a nice word, uh, the suppression bill that was uh, signed uh, by Governor Kemp late Thursday overhauls state election law after record-breaking voter turnout in the 2020 presidential election and absolutely zero indications of any fraud or mistallied votes. Well, there's your problem right there. Yeah. The, voters uh, turned out. And because voters yeah. got a chance to vote, they chose the people that they wanted. And that just didn't happen to be Republicans we, by very narrow margin. We can't have that sort of thing, <laughs> can we? Hi, Desi Doyle. Good to see you. There's your problem right there. Yep. So if you've listened to this program, uh, by the way, for any length of time, uh, you know that Georgia has been at the center of the voting rights battle for decades, really, by now. And grassroots organizers have worked uh, for years and ultimately successfully in many cases to make it easier for residents to utilize their right to vote. Again, as Desi would say, there's your problem. Of course, the Democrats won the presidential election in Georgia in 2020 for the first time in decades. That was followed by victories for Democrats in uh, two, not one, but two U.S. Senate runoffs. All of that, a major shift from a uh, from a state that used to be reliably Republican. Uh, among highlights of this bill, and again, highlights might not be the right word here, Associated Press, highlights of the bill uh, would require a photo ID in order to vote absentee by mail after more than 1.3 million Georgians uh, use that option to vote during the COVID-19 pandemic. It would also cut the time period that people have to request an absentee ballot. Why? Well, just because... And it will limit where drop boxes can be placed and where and when they can be accessed. Again, making it more difficult to participate in their own democracy. The bill would also reduce the time frame for runoff elections and shrink the amount of early voting during those runoffs. But the day before... The day before, Georgia Republicans absolutely caught pretty much everyone off guard by ramming this measure uh, through both houses of the uh, state legislature in one single day before it was then signed about an hour or two later by the governor before a uh, an actual House legislature leg legislator, a Democrat, was arrested for trying to witness the signing of that bill. Just the day before that, we spoke with Marilyn Marks of Coalition of Good Governance. Uh, she's been fighting like hell for voting rights and for over overseeable voting systems in the Peach State for years now. Her biggest concern 
And and one that and we tried to get it out to the public. Little did we know that it was going to be, you know, passed into law the next day. But her biggest concern and one that ironically had been receiving the least attention really still is, is that one that allows essentially for a takeover of elections by the Republican legislature itself. As AP describes this disturbing provision, now that some in the media have actually begun to notice it, uh, AP says one of the biggest changes in the bill would give the GOP-controlled legislature more control over election administration. The bill would replace the elected secretary of state as the chair of the state election board with a new appointee of the legislature's. That, after Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger rebuffed Donald Trump's attempts to overturn Georgia's election results. So he is out. And some new person, I'm just going to guess, a white guy, just a guess, uh, will be uh, added to the state elections board, giving essentially uh, full control of that board to the Republican legislature in Georgia. It would then allow this newly partisan state board to subsequently remove and replace entire county elections boards, replacing them with a single partisan operative at the whim of the state elections board. Remember, controlled by the legislature, and they could do so for virtually any reason. Voting rights advocates are very now very alarmed about this uh, about this measure and have been making clear in recent days that this provision, had it been in place last year, would have potentially allowed the results of the state's 2020 presidential race to be reversed, essentially by fiat of a partisan operative working at the behest of the partisan state elections board working at the behest of a partisan state legislature. Of course, Republicans assert all of these measures are simply to prevent fraud, that despite the lack of any evidence of any such fraud. Talk of the potential relocation of the all-star game, meanwhile, comes on the heels of President Biden describing Georgia's new voting law um, during a press conference last week as pernicious and un-American. He later went on to describe the law as an atrocity and in a blistering formal statement late on Friday, the president described the measure as Jim Crow for the 21st century. It must end, he said. We have a moral and constitutional obligation to act. I once again urge Congress, he said, to pass H.R. 1, the For the People Act, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to make it easier for all eligible Americans to access the ballot box and prevent attacks on the sacred right to vote. Both of these bills, uh, I believe both, have been passed now by the U.S. House and are bottlenecked by the GOP filibusters in the U.S. Senate. Biden vowed to take the case to the American people on this, including Republicans, he said, who he noted had joined the broadest coalition of voters ever in the past election to put country before party. He concluded, if you have the best ideas, you have nothing to hide. Let the people vote. One of Georgia's two new Democratic U.S. senators, Senator Raphael Warnock, slammed Georgia's new overhaul of its election rules as a way for politicians to cherry pick their own voters during an interview on CNN on Sunday. Politicians focused on their own political ambition is mm -hmm. what's gotten us here in the first place. 
Yeah. Uh, you have legislators who are running scared. And so rather than uh, having the people select uh, their uh, uh, politicians, the politicians are trying to cherry pick their voters. This is an assault on the covenant that we have with one another as an American people. And it's my job to protect it. And as I said at the top of the show, it's my job as well. Frankly, it is all of our jobs as far as I'm concerned. At the end of the day, Warnock said uh, to CNN later, the four most popular words are the people have spoken, adding we cannot allow politicians to silence the people to crowd them out of their own democracy. Similar laws to Georgia's, however, are now being attempted right now in other states like Arizona and Texas and Florida. One has already been passed in Iowa. In Florida, according to NBC News today, the Sunshine State is also now said to be considering a ban on giving fo- uh, voters food and water in a proposal that is similar to the one that has sparked all of the outrage in Georgia. Florida uh, Republican uh, lawmakers apparently saw that and they said, great, let's bring it to Florida. But especially while federal legislation remains locked up right now for now in the U.S. Senate, unless Democrats are able to overturn somehow or reform the filibuster that requires 60 votes to pass anything, what can Democrats and voting rights advocates or even the Department of Justice do about these laws. Just hours after uh, Governor Kemp signed that legislation into law on Thursday, a coalition of civil rights groups sued the state and Atlanta federal court, arguing that the measures are intended to make it harder for people to vote, particularly for black voters. Mark Elias, the Democratic lawyer who spearheaded the party's election legal efforts last year, is representing these groups, which include the new Georgia uh, Project, Black Voters Matter Fund, and RISE. These provisions lack any justification for their burdensome and discriminatory effects on voting, the lawsuit said. And now, on Monday, a second federal lawsuit was filed against the same law, this one brought by the NAACP of Georgia, the state's uh, League of Women Voters, Common Cause, the Lower Muscogee Creek Tribe, and the Galileo Latino Community Development Fund. This one is claiming that race was, quote, a motivating factor behind last week's passage of this bill known as SB 202. The plaintiffs allege that the Georgia law violates the Constitution and the Voting Rights Act in how it allegedly targets minority voters. The groups uh, also said that the uh, Constitution's freedom of speech protections are violated by the Georgia law. And while President Biden suggested that the Department of Justice was now looking at Georgia's new law. It is unclear what the DOJ could actually do about do about it, even if they wanted to. Over the weekend, I spoke via email with UC Irvine's election law expert, Justin Levitt. He worked in the Civil Rights Voting Division at the DOJ under President Obama. Um, after Brad Blog's legal analyst, Ernie Canning, had asked uh, uh, Levitt a question, asked him about uh, what standards the DOJ Voting Rights Division would use to determine whether to intervene as a party, uh, as a party plaintiff in a voting rights lawsuit like the ones we're seeing in Georgia, and whether this might be an appropriate case for the Department of Justice to jump in. 
Well, Levitt told us that, uh, quote, there is no specific laundry list of factors to help make that determination. He said DOJ will look at a number of things, including the local impact, the repeat nature of bad behavior and the degree to which other entities are likely to have the capacity to bring the same uh, uh, litigation. He said sharply, Georgia's law sucks and in parts it's needlessly cruel. But, he said, there are a few reasons why I think it's likely, uh, why I wouldn't think it's likely for the DOJ to get involved here. First, he said, DOJ does not have the authorization to bring claims directly under the Constitution. He says that's why you saw, for example, Attorney General Barr filing amicus briefs or statements of interest in some of the cases that were challenging coronavirus restrictions, but not bringing actual suits. To the extent that the Georgia law imposes burdens that don't make any sense, that would be a constitutional claim, he explained, and not one that the DOJ actually has the authority to bring. He later explained that essentially why the DOJ, you know, can they they can enforce a specific law. But what they can do is somewhat limited in their ability to take action merely because something may violate the Constitution directly. A violation of the Constitution, apparently, is not enough for the DOJ to get in. It actually has to violate an actual law. Uh, Second, Justin Levitt noted, uh, the DOJ does have the authority to bring claims under the Voting Rights Act. Aha, there's a law. But this, he said, is a very hard VRA case because he says it's going to be difficult to prove a substantial impact on African-Americans Uh, At least until an election is held and we can find out what that impact is. He says, I'm not saying there isn't likely an impact. I'm saying it's going to be quite difficult to prove in court, adding that uh, he doesn't mean DOJ won't get involved, but he says he wouldn't expect it. Now, given that Georgia's uh, 2020 presidential election was perhaps the most overseen and audited and recounted and recounted again uh, election, not only in Georgia's history, but arguably in U.S. history entirely in certain respects, with little or no fraud uh, found and little or no error found in any of the post-election audits and recounts, can any of these new provisions enacted and adopted in record time in the Georgia legislature by Republicans, can any of it possibly be justified as anything beyond an attempt to restrict the vote? Well, if not, then what can actually be done about all of this legally beyond the political pressure now being brought down uh, on the Peach State? Do the two legal actions now being brought in federal court have any chance of working? Should the Department of Justice step in and can they? What and what, if any effect, would the Democrats H.R. 1 or the For the People Act have on this specific legislation if Democrats can somehow get over a Senate filibuster or get rid of the Senate filibuster to enact this sweeping election and voting rights and campaign finance reform bill? the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And by the way, will any of these actions 
actually work to prevent voters from being disenfranchised or elections from being actually taken over directly by Georgia's GOP majority state legislature. We will take a quick break and we will come back with someone who may be able to answer at least some of those questions. Karen Short, senior voting rights attorney at the Southern Poverty Law Center, joins us next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yes, I'm going, going back to Georgia, where my memories trace through the southern ways of my youthful yesterday. Well, you know, we keep saying, uh, we keep using these going back to Georgia tunes, Desi Toy. And, and there uh, are only so many. Well, there are a lot of them, more than you would think, but. Going back to Georgia, we have never left Georgia. It feels like we have been reporting on Georgia for I don't know how many years on end. Well, it is kind of the fulcrum of voter suppression these days. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Yes, two lawsuits now have been filed to uh, oppose these sweeping new voting restrictions. Major League Baseball is considering moving their all-star game currently planned for Atlanta to a different state. And Joe Biden has called the law pernicious and an atrocity and Jim Crow for the 21st century, even as other GOP-controlled states are also now uh, considering similar restrictions on voting to the one that was passed last week with lightning speed by Georgia's Republican majority state legislature and signed just about an hour later by its GOP governor. The bill would, among other things, increase ID requirements for absentee voting. It will reduce early in-person voting in some places. It will ban the distribution of food and beverages to voters waiting in Georgia's famously long lines in some places. And it will threaten third-party advocacy groups with criminal violations if they dare to send an absentee ballot request form to someone already signed up to vote by mail. And perhaps most perniciously, according to some, it will allow partisan GOP legislature to take over the state board of elections, which in turn can then replace an entire county board of elections with a single partisan person, pretty much for any reason that they like threatening to both undermine or overturn county elections in, you know, certain counties, just the way Donald Trump might have liked after the 2020 election, which he narrowly lost in no uncertain terms in Georgia last year. Joining us now to explain what can and can't be done about all of this at the federal level is Karen Short, senior staff attorney for voting rights at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Karen Short, welcome to the broadcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Really appreciate you joining us, Karen. Uh, now, I don't believe that the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center is currently a party to either of the so far two lawsuits that have been uh, filed uh, to block this bill. Am I correct on that? 
You're correct, but we're definitely looking into it. Mm-hmm. So uh, stay tuned. G- good. Okay. Well, I had, you know, I had mentioned uh, one of the most troubling aspects, at least to me, that provision that essentially allows a partisan takeover uh, by the legislature of both the state board of elections and the ability to replace county boards, uh, elections board with a single partisan person, um, as I understand it. But there's a lot to be troubled about in this new law. What what jumps out at you and the Southern Poverty Law Center for a start as the greatest concern at this time? You're right. There's a lot to to be troubled about, yeah. um, and you know, I'm I'm speaking on on behalf of uh, the SPLC Action Fund, which mm-hmm. is our uh, 501c4 affiliate of the of SPLC. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we're a nonpartisan organization, mm-hmm. but we advocate on behalf of voters. Um, and this bill is troubling. Um, it would really disenfranchise. A lot of people in Georgia, mm-hmm. and it is, although it would apply equally to everyone, it is specifically targeted to harm black voters, brown voters, young people, um, voters with disabilities, um, and it will do so. Um, you know, we're looking at the Dropbox, Dropbox provision. Mm-hmm. That's how I voted, mm-hmm. uh, both in, in the um, general election and in the runoff. It would severely limit drop boxes, which are convenient, doesn't require the mail, um, dependence on the mail. It would really harm third-party advocacy groups, Mm -hmm. which have been instrumental in growing voter turnout, uh, voter mobilization, registration numbers in Georgia, which is why we have seen the incredible numbers that we have over the last 10 years in Georgia. Um, and criminalizing giving food or water, come on. I mean, that's just <laughs> inhumane. Um, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg with this bill. So um, can, we're troubled by a lot. Can you explain to me, you know, there's this, uh, there has been this thing, obviously, this was a, a Donald Trump hoax, but uh, this attack on drop boxes, which are secure. And, uh, you know, I spoke we spoke uh, with uh, Ion Sancho, uh, 30 year Florida elections director up in Leon County, Florida, spoke with him, I think, a week or two ago about this. And he said, you know, in Florida, they even passed a law that said that the drop boxes have to be manned. There has to be somebody watching them at all times. Uh, And yet Florida is looking at getting rid of the drop boxes. Same thing here now in Georgia, where they're limiting them. I don't understand it. Is the suggestion that somehow those are less secure than the regular U.S. mailbox, which seems to me much less secure because it's got to go through, you know, a ton of hands after that before it ever arrives uh, at the county elections headquarters? Um, What is up with this attack on drop boxes? Are you able to explain it, Karen? I think it's the same... um flawed um, and disingenuous argument that we see with a lot of these um, laws that that are coming Mm -hmm. um, from a lot of states. The justification is election integrity, security, preventing voter fraud. The issue there is that there is no voter fraud. They can't come up with um, any instances where a drop box has been tampered with, where there's been instances of fraud that would justify such a restriction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the justifications fall through. Um, what, we, what we know then 
is that the real reason is burdening voters. Mm -hmm. The outcome was not to their liking, and so there's going to be a, a burden on voters. And and so it's it's a solution in search of a problem, essentially. Mm -hmm. So there, I can't I can't explain <laughs> it except to say it's it's a pretext. There is no yeah. fraud. There is no problem. Drop boxes are, as you said, much more secure even than the mail, and the right. mail is is secure. Right. It is, a great a great way to to vote is by mail right um so there is no explanation except voter suppression anything you can do to make it harder to vote now you did uh note uh, karen short that some of these uh provisions are going to affect white voters as well as black voters and other minorities and and this is one of the problems uh, i think you heard hopefully you heard me before the uh break there when i was uh, quoting from justin levitt uh formerly of the uh, doj's uh voting rights uh, division uh, saying that, you know, essentially, until we have more data to prove that there is a disproportionate effect on minority of these laws, there's really nothing that the federal government can do. Do you uh, do you see it the same way? No, I think there is a lot of data. I think that while the laws are written in a facially neutral way, mm -hmm. because they are so specifically targeted um, at the provisions. Um, they're limiting the provisions that are so useful mm -hmm. um, to minority voters, black voters, other voters of color, um, historically disenfranchised voters. I think that there will be data, and this is why you're seeing claims being brought under the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits um, discrimination in voting on mm -hmm. the basis of race. That's why you're seeing these claims in these complaints, um, because the plaintiffs believe that there will be data um, to prove these claims. And, you know, these are difficult claims to bring, to uh -huh. prove. There's a lot of experts involved, a lot of, a lot of money um, that, that it takes. But um, the plaintiffs are confident that it can be proven. As, and as you mentioned, um, the, the election process was gone over and over and over in Georgia mm -hmm. um, w with recount after recount. And so there's plenty of data. Um, and uh, if it's there, uh, it will be proven. Now, in the old days, and by old, I mean pre-2013, pre-Shelby uh, County decision at the U.S. Supreme Court when they uh, essentially gutted uh, the provision of the Voting Rights Act that would, uh, well, what the, the part that they gutted would have required, and Karen, please help me uh, make sure I understand this correctly, but it would have required the state of Georgia to essentially prove in advance that these measures would not disproportionately affect minorities. But because the Supreme Court gutted the list of jurisdictions that uh, are required to meet a preclearance burden by having having their laws approved by either the DOJ or a three-person uh, federal court, um, we can't rely on that preclearance. Is this something that this law uh, would would that have met if the if the preclearance regime was still in order? Is this a law that would have been able to overcome that preclearance uh, regime, or would it have been stopped before it ever even went into effect at all? I believe it would have been stopped. I I also believe it very it's very unlikely they would have even attempted it in the first place mm. um, because they would have looked at whether um, these were provisions that were, they would have had to decide whether these were pro 
provisions um, that were used disproportionately by black voters, by voters of color, before they even attempted um, this bill, because they would have had the burden Mm -hmm. to demonstrate that this law would not have been racially discriminatory before they went to the trouble (laughs) of Mm -hmm. putting it together, um, because that would have been required for preclearance. and and so I, I'm not sure it would have even been attempted because mm-hmm. these are provisions that um, benefit um, black voters, voters of color, um, the ones that are being taken away, mm-hmm. um, third party advocacy groups um, going out and, and providing absentee ballot applications, use of drop boxes. Mm-hmm. These are all things that help voters who have had um polling places closed, um, that have had restrictions to their voting rights. Um, these are things that, that help those folks. Um, and this is what happens um, in, in black communities and uh, low-income communities, um, you know, the, the long lines. We know exactly mm-hmm. where, that, where that happens. Um, white folks in more affluent communities, they don't need food and water because they go in and out to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I, I think that it would have been, it would have been stopped if not never attempted in the first place. And this is why yeah. it's so critical that we have the, the federal laws passed that you mentioned before the People Act and the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act. Yeah, which would actually, because they didn't, the Supreme Court didn't actually kill the preclearance requirement in certain places. What they did is they killed the formula that determined right. which, are, which places with a history of, of uh, racial discrimination uh, have to uh, meet that preclearance uh, requirement, and that would be restored. A list, a new formula would would be restored with the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, as I understand it. Uh, I'm speaking with Karen Short, senior staff attorney on voting rights at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Karen, as a legal matter, isn't there a higher burden that must be demonstrated uh, when taking away a right that has already been granted? So, for example, if early voting was already allowed for X number of days, wouldn't the state have to show that there is a compelling and legitimate state interest, not just a partisan one, in in shortening the length of days for early voting <clears throat> or uh, or requiring driver's license info for absentee ballot requests, uh, despite any evidence of absentee ballot fraud that might have, you know, that might be prevented by such a measure? Do, don't they have to prove the need to take away these rights? Well, whenever you're looking, it depends on the on the claim that you're that you're bringing. So, whenever you're looking at um, a challenge on on the burden to the right to vote, whenever you're burdening the right to vote, and that's the typical claim that you're going to see as the first one in, in these cases. Mm-hmm. Um, any burden on the right to vote, um, it's it's a simple balancing test. So, on the one end of the scale is the burden. What is the weight of the burden on the voter? Um, and on the other end of the scale is the justification. What is the need of the state? Mm-hmm. What is the um, what is the the end mm-hmm. that they are trying to accomplish? So, as you mentioned, the the state's end of the scale doesn't tip very heavily because there's zero evidence of fraud. They they their justification is election integrity and security and fraud. They have very little. On the burden end of the scale, you're looking at, you know, 
is is the voter burdened by this? Mm-hmm. So for absentee voting, for people who don't have um, an existing driver's license, mm-hmm. photo ID, a passport, what is the burden on that person, on these voters, to obtain that document for purposes of voting? Mm-hmm. Do they have a birth certificate? What is it going to cost them to get a birth certificate? Do they have a car? Can they get to the DMV? Are they working? All of those things. Mm-hmm. What is the burden on those voters? And then you weigh them. Um, that's that's what that looks like. And when you have justification from the state, yeah, that really doesn't amount to much. They cannot prove any election fraud to right. justify these laws. You know. Yeah, but uh, Karen, we have seen this, uh, and we, we've seen it some uh, for for some years when it came to the fight over. Uh, photo ID restrictions at the polling place. And we're seeing it again here, it seems to me. For example, in a Reuters uh, poll out uh, in February, 62 percent of Republican voters said that they were, quote, very concerned that elections were tainted by ineligible people casting votes. And Republicans who have been adopting these laws um, you know, to some extent, they concede, well, we have no actual evidence of fraud uh, in the 2020 election. But, you know, because our constituents are concerned that there might have been fraud after Trump lied to them for weeks and months about it, that that alone, that concern that there could be fraud is enough to justify the state's burden. Uh, does that work in a court of law? There, there is certainly case law that will give the state something on that. There, you know, election integrity is certainly um, a legitimate justification. Mm-hmm. Securing elections, um, preserving election integrity is certainly important. Yeah. Um, but this isn't about and, in, in, ensuring election integrity. This is ensuring people's concerns about yeah. election integrity based on and, no evidence. And, and, and perception right. is definitely something. We want people to have faith in the system, right? That's true of many systems. That's true of the judicial system. That's true of mm-hmm. elections. So that mm-hmm. it's not nothing. It's mm-hmm. something. Um, but when you're putting that up against real voters and their burden and, and them being disenfranchised, um, that's also something very concrete mm-hmm. that a court will look at. Um, and when you put it up against the state not having any evidence to demonstrate, well, there's no fraud. And not only is there no fraud, but there are existing safeguards within the law that help prevent the exact thing that you're trying to prevent with this new law, Mm -hmm. with this new provision. Or we can explain, court, how this new law will do nothing to help you prevent the type of fraud that people are so concerned about. Um, for example, uh, this past summer, during the, the big election was, where COVID was mm-hmm. such a big concern and everybody needed to vote by absentee ballot, mm-hmm. in Alabama, Alabama allowed everyone to vote by absentee ballot if they wanted to, mm-hmm. selected one of the existing excuses. But the state failed to remove the requirement to have to, to provide a photo ID, mm-hmm. Alabama I think already has this requirement, mm-hmm. copy of your photo ID, and you have to have your ballot either witnessed by two people mm-hmm. or notarized. Right. And so 
one thing that we showed in court was that the witness requirement, having two people sign your ballot envelope, does absolutely nothing to prevent any sort of fraud. Mm -hmm. When it goes into the absentee ballot manager, they don't follow up. They don't call. There's no phone number. They They don't reach out to the person who signed your ballot to say, hey, did Karen Short... Was that who, uh-huh. you know, Karen personally, right. did you see her sign her ballot? There's, it's an absolutely meaningless measure. Mm-hmm. It does absolutely nothing. So just, you know, it's just a burden. The court yeah. That it's pointless and yeah. it's just an additional burden. Exactly. And, and how'd that go over? Did the court say, you're right, it's a burden, let's lift that for this election? Yeah, the, tr- the trial court agreed with us. Okay. Um, un- unfortunately, the Supreme Court, um, the decision. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and, that, and that's what I'm worried about, because I know in, in places like Alabama, where John Merrill, uh, the secretary of state there, who yeah. blocks me on Twitter unlawfully, so I don't really know what he's up to, but I know that— You're not alone. You're not alone. <laughs> it's it's yeah. good. I would feel—I I know. He blocks everybody who, who simply yeah. politely asks questions. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, they're going to challenge us all the way up to the stolen and packed Supreme Court, no matter what these cases are. And that's why if we don't pass a law— uh, this brings us back to, you know, we talked about the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that uh, that might have helped here because Georgia would likely be on a list of states that had to get preclearance. But, you know, a lot of people talk about H.R. 1, the For the People Act, wildly important election reform legislation at the federal level that's being blocked by the Senate. But looking at that, uh, Karen, I'm not sure what in H.R. 1 would actually stop pretty much everything that's going on in Georgia. Can you help me there? Yeah. So there are a number of provisions in the For the People Act that deal specifically with absentee ballots. Mm -hmm. So specifically um, require that absentee ballots have a number of opportunities for return. So drop boxes or being Mm. able to return them during early voting. Um, it, It really covers pretty much everything you can think of um, when it comes to voting and accessibility and options for people. Um, The Brennan Center has an amazing annotated guide to the For the People Act. Mm -hmm. Um, It it really modernizes elections. it, it, It doesn't do everything you would want, but it creates a baseline, federal baseline of standards for voting um, and and really prevents from, from states doing what, what is happening in Georgia, doing what some of the things that we're seeing uh, in Alabama and some things that were attempted um, in Mississippi and what we expect in Florida. Um, so it, it would deal with some of these mm-hmm. issues. There are some good provisions on um, voter intimidation, which I think would cover some of these issues that mm. deal with citizens being able to call in and challenge voters oh yeah uh, and their qualifications right um so you know it it might not cover everything yeah um but it would get to a lot of it and if if the john lewis voting rights act Mm -hmm. were to be made retroactive um it could cover um this this law as well um and it would prevent new things from going into into effect Mm -hmm. um, if this law were to be enjoined by a federal court, which we hope it it will be. And and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act 
isn't just a geographic formula. It also has a nationwide formula mm -hmm. that would be practiced-based. So specific areas of the country that have certain thresholds um, of demographics, if they pass certain types of laws, those have to be pre-cleared. So it's not just certain areas of the country. It's mm -hmm. If you have certain dem demographic thresholds mm -hmm. um, and you want to pass, you want to change your language access rules, or you want to pass a, a photo ID law, you have to get it pre-cleared. There is, uh, and by the way, I'm going to take a break shortly and, and let Karen go. i got one more question for you, but I'll, I want to let folks know. I'll, I'll try to open up the phone lines if we have some uh, time here at the end of the hour. 818-985-5735. 818-985-KPFK if you'd like to ring in on uh, any of this with any of your thoughts. Uh, I know that, yeah, you know, neither of these bills is a, a cure-all for everything. I think the, the food and water restrictions uh, in, in lines might not be stopped by H.R. 1. The, uh, the, the takeover of the county elections boards, which is really troubling. Um, I don't know if that would be prevented by HR1. But uh, Karen, as I let you go, what, what do you what do you see as necessary right now in the U.S. Senate when it comes to the filibuster for either of these laws, whether it's HR1 or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, to actually have a chance at passage at this point? Well, and I did want to note you mentioned that uh, HR4 had been introduced; mm -hmm. it has not yet been introduced. Ah, John okay. Lewis Voting Rights Act. Okay. Um, it, it will be introduced, I believe, later this summer. And it will be filibustered. Uh, yes, go ahead. <laughs> you know, I, I think I think it would be naive to suggest that, it, that either one could be passed um, without filibuster reform. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but that, that's not my area of expertise. Um, but I, I think that what is necessary is for, you know, you mentioned that it's everyone's job, that democracy is everyone's job. And I, I could not agree more with that. You know, these are our representatives. Mm -hmm. These are our um, policymakers. They represent what we want. Yep. And there's an active grassroots effort right now uh, by organizations like mine all over the South, all over Georgia, all over the country to make sure, you know, writing letters to editors, um, speaking out, doing phone banking, every single state, mm -hmm. calling folks to let them know this is what we want. Um, even if it's someone you think you know how they're voting on this, um, reaching out to folks and saying, this is what we need. We need mm -hmm. democracy reform. We need transparency. We need fairness. We need protection for folks in the Deep South who are facing bills like the one in Georgia. Yeah. This cannot stand. I, it cannot happen in my name um, as an American. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we need to we need to get involved. This is this is our moment. This is folks' moment to get involved. Call yep. your friends who live in those states that are going to be needed for filibuster reform if necessary. Yep. Um, because this, you know, some folks on the Democrat side have said failure is not an option. Um, and, and it's absolutely true. This, this has to happen. But we have to hold them 
to it. It's not enough for them to say failure is not an option. Oh, yeah, Chuck Schumer, what you got planned? We got your back, but you better make this happen. Uh, Karen Short, senior staff attorney on voting rights at the Southern Poverty Law Center. You can, of course, find their work at splcenter.org. You can follow them on the Twitters at splcenter. And you can follow Karen with a C, Karen Short, on Twitter. Karen, really enjoyed talking to you today. I hope you'll uh, stay in touch with us as all of this moves forward. If the uh, SPLC Action Fund ends up uh, jumping into any of this, because you're right, it's uh, it's all hands on deck. So uh, thank you for all that you, you are doing and that you guys do over there at SPLC. Thank you so much. Thanks, Karen. Uh, All right, great. Well, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and try to get to uh, some of your calls. You want to ring in on this? 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. If not, I've also got some thoughts on on COVID and what's going on right now. We'll try to get to all of that uh, and, and you. Straight ahead on the Bradcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. U.S. President Joe Biden said on Monday that 90% of all adults in the U.S. will be eligible for the coronavirus vaccine by April 19. As he warned, however, about the potential for an upsurge in infections. He said people are letting up on precautions. We are giving up hard-fought, hard-won gains. He asked folks to just hang in there for a few more weeks, announcing that he had directed the coronavirus team to ensure there was a vaccination site within five miles of 90 percent of Americans within three weeks. He said doses are now plentiful enough that nine of 10 adults in the nation or more will be eligible for a shot by April 19. Previously, he had said that would uh, not happen until May 1. He said you don't have to wait. Till, till May to be eligible for your shot. And indeed, here in California, the state announced last week that everyone older than 50 would be able to sign up for a vaccine by April 1. That is just a couple more days. Hang in there. And that everyone older than 16 would be able to sign up on April 15th. We can do this, people. Let's try to, because right now the number of uh, cases is beginning to tick up. According to the New York Times database, uh, the number of cases has increased 16 percent over the past two weeks nationally. 
it's still coming down uh, here in California, but not everywhere uh, because people are thinking COVID is over. It ain't, not by a long shot. 818-985-KPFK is our phone number. Let me go to, uh, where am I here? Uh, Gigi in Pasadena. Hey, Gigi, welcome to the broadcast. Hi, Brad. Hi. Long time no talk to us. It has been a while. Good to hear from you. It has, <laughs> it, it has been. Thank you, sweetheart. It, am I? Uh, and I know you said we could, uh, about the show, was excellent as always, that, and you said our comments uh, about things. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no evidence of cheating, but they can actually, actually change these voting laws, even though we know that there is no evidence of, they can reword this, uh, you mm-hmm. know, as a child, I'm 73 now, Brad, I did, I can't believe that this is happening. It, it's like, it's like heads they win, yep. tails we lose. There's yep. nothing we can do. And it's sort of like, and I'm going to hop off and I say this, that hearing for uh, Mr. Floyd is going on right now. Yeah. And all their defense is, their defense is, well, he couldn't have died from being suffocated with the knee because it's, because the wishbone isn't sticking out the right way, and this ventricle didn't get squeezed, uh, uh, depleted of blood, so we can't call that 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 the, uh, that that police murdered him. This is what kind of bizarre world are we living in? Love you, Brad. I'll take your comments off the phone. Though. All right, love you back, Gigi. Thank you for that call. Greatly appreciated. Uh, yeah, that's the question. What kind of world are we living in? Well, we're living in a world where. We're just going to let this happen unless we raise holy hell about it. It's why we talk about voting rights all year round, not just a week or two before an election or even a few days after a terrible law has been passed. We've been trying to warn about this bill and what's been going on in going on in Georgia and a bunch of other states now, uh, really day in and day out on this broadcast. So uh, keep raising hell. Um, uh, over on uh, the Twitters, someone who calls themselves incognito says, as a white progressive in California, am I now also disenfranchised by the actions taken in Georgia to suppress anyone who is not a Republican? Because it rigs the balance of power in Congress and it rigs the outcome of presidential elections. We need a national class action suit, incognito says. Uh, We need everybody to understand what is going on, and we need everyone to raise their voice and raise holy hell. All right, we got to get out. Uh, Sorry, Mo. I couldn't get to Mo. Uh, My apologies. We'll get him next week. Uh, We got to go. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my board operator, Federico Garcia, to my guest today, Karen Short of the Southern Poverty Law Center, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion, download it for free at bradblog.com. Drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We will see you here. See you there until we see you here tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Whoa.